Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. This uh, passage is like a gift box made of the promises of God and filled with hope. This is a passage that describes the unchanging character of God from many different perspectives, gives us promises and uh, offers of help in time of temptation and testing and shows us that there is a way out and that there is a way to be strengthened by God in the midst of both suffering and our, from, from without and from our own temptations from within and to remain in God's hand. So as we look at this passage, I'd like to ask everybody to open up a Bible or pull up a Bible on your phone We're going to do a little Bible study exercise looking together for one thing. And I'd like us to just raise our hands and point out, uh, just I'll call on you, uh, point out attributes of God. 
that you can see from this passage, both that are explicit and that are revealed in the things we see God doing here. And then we'll continue with a short exposition. And may I ask that we write these things in brief on the whiteboard. Stephen. He gives good gifts. He's a good gift giver. Mm. What a wonderful person. Daniel. So the first portion says continue under suffering because it will cause you to become steadfast and steadfastness must finish its perfect work because uh, of making you mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's clear that the Lord's hand is in this, you said, and that God wants you to grow and mature and to become more perfected and more complete. Yeah, John. He's a rewarder of those who persevere. This is one of the most blessed and precious promises in the whole scripture. What does it say he or she who perseveres receives a crown of life. Thank you, John Luke. What kind of crown of life? Golden. Okay. Does it say it there? I might be thinking of the other passage. Uh, it's an unfading crown of glory. Is that from Philippians? This isn't a a temporary wreath that somebody in the ancient Greek world might win after, uh, might might have placed on the brow after winning a race or a competition. This is one that where the leaves don't fall off and it doesn't dry out and kind of wither up. This is an unfading crown of glory. This is a crown of life. This is a glorification of the once saved sinner, now completed and perfected and fully delivered from all suffering of this world and temptations from oneself or from spiritual warfare and demons outside you. This is a promise of a crown of life awarded to the one who perseveres in this life. That is like the best thing. So making that an observation about the Lord, we said it's, it's God who gives it. God gives a reward of a crown of life to the one who perseveres. Morgan. Verse 18, God does what he pleases. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He wasn't compelled just to deal with us. He actually wants us. And from eternity past, he made up his mind that we might be his. So we're seeing and identifying some wonderful realities about the nature of God. And does that nature change? Jeff. Verse 17, thank you, Jeff. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's, 
there's not even a hint of change in God. There's not like a little bit of a a shadow. There's no evidence, no sign of change at all. He's completely unchanging. Adam and I were meditating on these things uh, when we went for a walk earlier this week, and we talked about uh, several different scriptures that identify that simply God doesn't change. And we said that that is one of the most hopeful things in the whole world, because our lives are full of change. Sydney. God doesn't deceive. Amen. God doesn't deceive. God doesn't trick you. So the, the reverse negative of that is that the, the logical flip side of that is that he is truth. So if he doesn't deceive, then there must not be any deception in him. Right? So it must be that he himself, therefore, isn't deceived and cannot be deceived. Yeah. What else can't he be? Tempted. He can't be tempted. So God's not going to fail if he can't be tempted, right? That is assurance for us when we are tempted. What else do we see about God, about his character, John? He is present before all. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and then it describes it. So he is present before all. Can you, can you explain that in another sentence? Uh, other there is nothing hidden from his sight. Everything is laid bare before his eyes. The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the whole earth. Yeah. You saw me, you, you saw my unformed frame when I was in my mother's womb. Yeah. He is all seeing. What else do we see about God here? John Luke. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not just hearers. When Jesus walked the earth, he didn't just say things, he did them. He perfectly did the will of the Father. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Verse 25 refers to the perfect law, the law of liberty. So God's law is itself perfect. What is God's law? What's God's law? It's an expression of his nature. What is God's law? The Ten Commandments and more, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Verse 25, uh, don't be a hearer, but a doer. And the one who does will be blessed in his deeds. So God is a rewarder. So what you do matters. What you're going through is significant. God sees what you're going through and he cares. Does anybody know that verse in the beginning of Exodus? It's one of my favorites. It's uh, maybe the beginning of chapter two. It says that God saw and God knew. Does anybody recognize that? That's, I think, one to be memorized. It's talking about God seeing his people having suffered in Egypt for 400 years of slavery. And surely the people thought God was far away or God was no more or God had forgotten them. Surely they wrestled with such thoughts, temptations towards believing such things like we have, yeah? And it says, God saw and God knew. Morgan. Exodus 3, 7. Thank you. Can I read it into the mic? Thank you. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And it goes on. And there's another one even before that that says God saw and God knew. 225. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we said this God doesn't change. Thank you. Thank you. So God doesn't change. Since God doesn't change, God sees you. God knows what you're going through. The, the meaning of those two verses is that God cares. What else? There's something we started to get at. Morgan, you said it. Um, uh, you started to say something like he was in charge, I think. can't remember quite how you worded it. Give us some more of that. God was doing what pleased him. He's so in control of his self and the universe that he doesn't have to listen to anybody else. He has the ultimate power. Yeah. Yeah. He's, oh, I love that. Thank you. And he's not compelled just to deal with us. He chose us from eternity past to be his sons and daughters. And looking at Exodus again, he came down to help us. These are the things that we meditate on every day as Christians. Jeff. Verse 18. Verse 20 speaks of the righteousness of God. Verse 20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
this verse contrasts our anger with God's righteousness. Yeah, so there's a contrast between God's character and we who, and us who are made in the image of God. What else do we see about God here? Any other observations? Anybody who's shy? <laughs> now you're not going to say it. God is compassionate. God loves orphans and widows. That is, God loves those who are in need. Are you in need? You don't have to be an orphan or a widow. God loves those who are in need. He sees you, he knows your need, and he is very present to help you, to strengthen you with his right hand. Are your hands weak and unable to do for yourself? Are your hands full of unrighteousness? God will uphold you with his righteous right hand. It says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not, be not dismayed, for I am your God. That means God has power to keep himself as your God, even when you would have slipped out of, you would have jumped out of his hand, so to speak. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we said this is a passage of, of hope. It's a, it's a gift box made out of promises and descriptions of the unchanging nature of God. Good gift giver, rewarder of those who perseveres, unchanging, light, truth, unable to fail, faithful, omnipresent, all-seeing, perfect, omniscient, all-knowing, caring, helper, independent, not dependent on us, hmm. righteous, compassionate, omnipotent, all-powerful. With that, we could say he is king. Thank you. So we said this passage is like a gift box made of the promises of God and descriptions of his unchanging nature. These things that we meditate on every day. And it's a, it's a box filled with hope. Hope for the one in trouble. Hope for the one being both tempted and tested. <clears throat> so... Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But I thought we said God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and king. It says a little farther down that every good and perfect gift is from above. So, God is king then. So, he is the one who has dominion, and I'm making a big circle with my arms. Everything in this circle is everything that is. This is the universe, and God's right outside it, right at the top, and also 
present in it, and everything is his. It's his domain. There's evil in it. There's good in it. He is outside it. He is good, and in him there is no darkness nor shadow. He is light and righteousness. So by that we see that God can be good and there can be a world with evil in it. And God mysteriously can be present and remain unchanging in a world with evil in it. And he mysteriously can love and fellowship with those who were called out of darkness, we who still sin, he can be with us even though we have sinned and will sin again. These are kind of mysterious things. They might be considered paradoxes, but we can see that these are true. So if every, since every good and perfect gift is from God, shouldn't we thank him for everything good? If you, if you think so, if you think that's a true statement, say amen. Okay, that's pretty much everybody. So if everything good is from God, is everything evil from God? Say amen if you think so. Didn't get any. So is God responsible for evil things? He's responsible for good things. Amen? amen. So we may continually be offering up a sacrifice of thank yous to his name for everything good. So is he responsible for evil things? Let's answer that with multiple points. Did somebody say something? Tony. He might be responsible for things we perceive as evil, like a storm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And he is responsible for storms. And he's Lord over them. And storms can bring both blessing and harm. And he is in dominion over storms, right? So evil things don't happen because God is weak. You're not suffering. You're not being tempted because God is insufficient. Um, there was a famous rabbi in the last century that wrote about uh, uh, God's inability to help people. And therefore, we have to kind of buck up, be good, get strong. And then between us and God, we can get the job done. Well, that's heresy. Amen? Amen. So God, evil things don't happen because God is weak. It is not perfectly logical to say your actions are God's fault. The atheist challenges to the faith might go something like this. God is responsible for all good things. And we must, we, we must thank him for them. Therefore, if God is responsible for the universe or in in if, he, if the universe is his domain, then evil things are his fault. That is not a logical statement. That doesn't logically follow. If you say your evil is God's fault, you are morally deficient and liable to judgment. You will be judged for accusing God of forcing you to do evil. Were you born a sinner? One uh, excellent thing in the Roman Catholic teaching is the doctrine of original sin. And, and many people who grow up in uh, that uh, affiliation believe it. 
And we all should. We were all born in sin. But it's still our sin. We still do it. We have responsibility. We have real responsibility for our choices. When we do something in God's world, we still did it. Right? Is everybody, is everybody with me there? Okay, amen. Your sin, if you say God's evil is your fault, if you blame God for tempting you, which he doesn't do, and he can't be tempted, then you are morally at fault. Your sin there is that you mislabeled and misrepresented God. And that is a supreme sin. You were made in the image of God to bear his image. And as image bearers, we carry and are born with a responsibility to rightly represent him, sinners or righteous, and born in sin, we misrepresent him and worship idols, etc. And we say false things about God for which we would be judged, except for Christ being judged on our behalf and becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And having passed from death to life, we may glorify him and be filled with thank yous for the good, right? So God permits evil in his world in his domain. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the weight of the evil we have seen or see in film or the news, and it can, be, it can seem so great that we have a hard time trusting in God's goodness. This is something most of us have struggled with or will. There are several important biblical considerations we said evil things don't happen because God is weak. It's not logical to say your actions in God's world are God's fault, and yet he still remains in charge over this world, right? And he still made you, and you are still born in sin, right? That still doesn't, it's still not logical to say it's his fault that you sinned. Think about it this way. I'm holding up my hand. This is when you were born, about a centimeter past that, that's when you will die. This is your lifespan, right? Now I'm moving my hand a couple feet to the other side. This is the beginning of human history. God created Adam and Eve. From, from Adam, he made every nation of men, right? Over here on the other side, with my arms stretched wide, this is the end of human history. Evil began in the garden. Evil will end here. Your life is somewhere in there, and it's real short. If you're in your 20s or 30s, you probably have about 50 years left. That's not that long. If you're a little older or a little younger, it's all about the same. We have a limited lifespan. That's how long you will see this evil for which you might cry out to God, God, why have you permitted this? It only started back here. It'll end here. Now let's have some biblical perspective. Imagine if you could look out our stained plastic windows far in the distance, <laughs> as far as the eye can see. Now imagine if you could look over the horizon or beyond it through the sky into space and keep looking and let your, let your mind's eye travel a distance to the distance of your imagination. 
Eternity past continues beyond that. And it came right up to chunk right here, the first evil, and then chunk, evil ends. Now look that way through the wall, beyond the neighborhood, past the city of Dayton, beyond our state, beyond our continent, beyond the entire Pacific Ocean, out into space. Eternity will continue forever in that direction. There will be no evil there. God will settle all accounts. Evil lasts this long. There is great evil in the world. We are tempted and led away and lured, caught, in a fish, caught by a fish hook, if you will, by our own evil desires. That's going to end. This is a passage filled with hope and the promises of God and the unchanging nature of God who from here to here, for only this long, has allowed evil in his domain. There never was any evil before, before he created, and he will, he will cause it all to cease, right? Consider the timeline of your life and the timeline of human history. Evil is limited, very limited. So think with a biblical perspective about this. Next point. God is strong enough to use the evil things that happen to you and the evil things you do to bring something beautiful and pleasing out of the mess. It says he brings beauty from ashes is as he takes the, the lowly and seats them high up with the princes. You can imagine in the old days, people would, when they were grieving, when they, when they had nothing, when they were ruined, when they had lost everything, they would go over to their fireplace or their, their, uh, their oven and they'd scoop up some ashes and they'd dump ashes on themselves. And they'd maybe rip their clothes or put on like, uh, like, like sackcloth, like put on a gunny sack, put on this really rough, uncomfortable fabric to show on the outside what they were experiencing on the inside. If, if that's you, remember that the scripture says that God takes the lowly and he seats them high up with the princes, not high up with the rich or the people of high position, but the, the royalty, those who rule. We will reign in life and in death by his blood and by his word, by the word of our testimony that Jesus died for me and saved me. And therefore we reign even in the middle of sin with him. And one day that crown will be given to you. And in gratitude for this good and perfect gift, you'll take it off and you'll cast it at his feet says in Revelation. And yet you will remain glorified and wearing an intangible crown of life, even as you cast your glory and gratitude at his feet for gloriously sustaining you in the midst of temptation and the midst of suffering. Only God can do that. No other God, no other religion promises that God can take evil and bring good out of it, undoing the evil that was done and making something truly beautiful and righteous 
even a pure and spotless bride. And if you are a Christian here today, if this is your hope and trust, you may be sure of this, that God's destiny for his church, his saints, is to keep us from falling out of grace and to keep us in his hands. We will not be lost and he will clothe us with his own righteousness. He already has. John, who saw the revelation of Jesus and wrote of it in Revelation, said he saw uh, a holy city. It's the city of God, the people of God. How did he describe the the people of God, this quote-unquote New Jerusalem, right? The center of God's presence, where God's temple is in the world, where God lives and dwells and is pleased to, to make his name known. That's us. How did he describe this city, this people? How did he describe us? He said, a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. It's like, I mean, men might dress up nicely, but, but men never really get as nice looking as a bride. I mean, in my opinion, uh, it's probably biased. Imagine this beautiful bride adorned for her husband. It's the idea of the, the, the wiping away of sin, the clothing in white symbolizing purity. Remember, we're talking about sinners here. We're talking about ourselves. And this is God's promise for his people. This is the hope offered in this passage in James. And what does it depend on? It depends on his unchanging nature and his earnest desire for his people. He desires good things for us. And he is the good gift giver. When you're tempted, when you're suffering, remember that only God can bring something beautiful and perfect out of it. And for that, we worship him. And for doing that in our own lives, we love him. Consider Jesus. Jesus committed no sin and no evil was found in his mouth. Can you imagine a person who never says anything wrong? That's Jesus. You just imagined him. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. If I'm overwhelmed at the thought of evil in the world and temptation and my own failings, and I'm I'm losing heart and losing hope in God, and I'm wilting, and I'm weary, I may not fault God when I'm tempted. It's not his fault but he is able to use that for my good. And then I consider Jesus, and I remember that if he suffered for somebody else, me, for something somebody else did, that's me, then when I suffer, I can not be mad at God. So if today you're mad at God, say you're sorry. Repent of it. Say, I was wrong, you didn't do anything wrong. And thank you. James begins, this is outside our passage today, James begins saying, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of 
various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or steadfastness. That means you're not going to move. You're not going to get tossed back and forth so much. And steadfastness must, must finish its perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And we've already looked ahead at our future as saints, our glorification and perfection in his presence. And we can thank him for that now. I regularly thank him for that in my prayers. What will be, and you should too. So why does God test his people? God tests his people to see if you will follow him. Is there help when you're tested? And is, the help, is there help when you're experiencing temptation from inside yourself, from your own desires? Yes. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is fully devoted to him. That's help. You have a future in God. You have hope. You have restoration and reconciliation with him. So this passage says twice, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't think it's God's fault when you're tempted. Don't be deceived and think that you are religious when you actually have worthless religion. Worthless religion is what? Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, so I guess my tongue is like this horse, probably a big and angry and untamed horse, and it needs a bridle. If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So if anything and everything comes out of my mouth, railing against God, bitterness and poison towards my fellow man and those in the church around me, if this is my lifestyle, I've been duped. I don't belong here even though I'm standing in your company, I've been deceived. This says, don't be deceived. Don't hear the scripture and not do it. Bridling your tongue is a key aspect of, of proving that God's grace in your life has effect, of, of showing that you belong to him and that he's made up his mind to, verse 18, bring you forth by the word of truth, even this scripture and this gospel, that you should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you are a piece of fruit growing on a fruit tree and you're rotten, if you have not and do not and will not bridle your tongue, that's a bad sign. Think of yourself holding on to those same reins and getting dragged along by this horse as it charges off and you're bouncing around behind it. That's you if your mouth is full of deadly poison, of accusation of people and against the Lord. If that's true of you, your religion is not pure, your religion is defiled, and it's worthless. It's the kind of religion that Many, most people in our country make fun of all the time and that the scientific community considers irrelevant, old-fashioned, and superstitious. But there is 
true religion that is pure and undefiled. And what defines true religion? Well, first God does. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. Undefiled, pure, real religion that stands the test of time is religion that when he dwells in you, he causes a new love to spring up inside you that you are not so self-centered and so self-satisfied that you visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, this passage begins with hope for the afflicted, and then God is showing us how he remakes us in his image and gives us the same concern for others who are afflicted. Your life, if you are in Christ, will become more and more about others, others who are afflicted. And everybody is afflicted sometimes, and some of us more than others. Let your life be all about giving up your money, your time, your plans, your, your energy, your health, uh, wearing yourself out for others. That's pure religion. Orphans and widows, orphans with no mother or father to watch out for them, orphans with no mother or father to teach them, to raise and mentor them. You should become a mentor of young people who have limited parental mentoring. Widows, so that's a woman who's lost her husband, right? And in the old days, uh, you didn't have so many successful single moms who could uh, work and earn a good paycheck. There was a time when women couldn't work or couldn't work and, and earn a reasonable salary. There are still problems with that, of course. A widow doesn't just mean a woman who's lost her husband and, and can't provide for herself. It means anybody who is in need, is in distress. Perhaps this is a single mom. How are you reaching out to those in your own congregation? What do you do on a weekly basis for those in need and distress? Where are you, who are you mentoring? Or if you're not yet qualified to be a mentor, okay. How are you becoming qualified to mentor? And how are you working hard to save up so that you can give to those in need? If you're not, maybe you're not in Christ. If you're not, maybe something needs to change. Maybe you yourself haven't been changed by the grace of God so that you might be remade in his image so that your life is all about concern for the afflicted, having yourself been comforted in your own affliction. Verse 19 Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Can you get angry? Yes. Can you, can you stay angry day and night and let the sun go down while you're still angry? Well, no, that's unrighteous anger. Can you let your anger whinny and go, <laughs> and drag you off while you're still trying to hold on to the reins or your foot's caught in the stirrup and, it, and you're bouncing along the ground and your anger has now taken control of you, an uncontrolled uh, uh, brute beast, and you're red in the face and you're enraged. This isn't righteous anger and nothing good will come of it. 
One of my favorite verses, I didn't like it. Okay, one of the most helpful verses that I needed all last year when I was really wrestling with becoming an angry and impatient driver was, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And I had to recite that one over and over again. And by the way, these scriptures will be next to useless to you if you don't have them memorized. So if you're not reading these enough to remember them, if you're not writing note cards or, 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 or praying the scripture out loud, if you're not reading this a lot, if you're not taking in large volumes of scripture and making a real serious effort to memorize it, where are you going to be when temptation comes? He not only brings us forth by this word, he also sustains us in temptation by this word and these promises. So I depended very heavily on that word from this passage as I was wrestling with an anger problem last year, or rather it was probably kind of wrestling me and had me a little bit pinned. And the Lord gave me victory through the scripture and through nothing else and through no strength of my own. But as I recited that from behind my steering wheel, God gave me grace to turn into the slow lane and back off just a little bit. And that is analogous to so many things in our marriages, in our relationships with our housemates, with our parents, with our children. Sometimes you need to back off a little bit. If your tongue, if your anger, if these things have control of you instead of you reining them in under the help and power and grace of God, when you're tempted to let loose on somebody with your anger or let loose on them with your sharpened tongue and stab them with it, um, your religion might not be worth anything at all. But God can bring you forth by these promises, by meditation on his character, and by this gospel of Jesus' ability to keep you from falling, of Jesus' ability to keep you from falling, you have hope when tested, hope when tempted, and if you are a hypocrite, there is hope for you. And we are all hypocrites sometimes. We're all coming out of that because that's natural religion, hypocrisy. Orthodoxy must become orthopractice, orthopraxy. You can't just have the right beliefs. You have to do the right thing under God's grace and power, or else uh, you have not known him. You will begin to find victory and help in time of need from time to time and increasingly so, and it will become obvious to others that you have love for the Lord, love for his word, love for the saints, that you have a regular habit of confessing out loud and to others your sin and repenting, and you go through the gospel every day. And then not only you, but others will know that God has tested you to make you steadfast, perfect, and complete, and God has determined to cause you to represent him well. And he is able to do this. For that, we worship him. For doing that in our own lives, we love him. Amen. So, Father, we thank you that you have the ability not only to communicate through a human, but to rightly communicate your own word, powerfully accompanied by your spirit, 
right into our minds, even when we're distracted and buffeted by temptations and tests, you have the ability to cause your word to be implanted in our thinking, yea, even in our spirits and our souls, and to cause it to bear fruit as you water and you cause us to meditate on these very great and precious promises. So, Lord, fill us with the hope of the joy of the unfading crown of glory, even the crown of life that you have promised to those who persevere, to those who love you. And now, all of our hope is in you, that you would cause us to persevere. We are sorry for any dissatisfaction with you. We are sorry that we have been wrong and have blamed you when things went wrong in our lives or when we received storms and hard things. Thank you very much for both good and perfect gifts of which all are from you. And thank you for every hard thing we have suffered. And thank you even for permitting us to be born in sin and to sin that we might reach out for you and find you and desire you, you who unstained by sin and unchanging stepped into a sin-filled world that you might be glorified by revealing that your righteousness is for sinners, your righteousness is for the condemned, and that was us. And you've declared your name to us in the person of Jesus Christ who perfectly representing the entire Trinity has poured out the Holy Spirit on us that we might be able to persevere in trial. So now, Lord, strengthen us. And thank you. Amen.